So uh, tonight's message is out of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I was talking with my friend this morning, another pastor, and he was telling me that uh, he couldn't sleep well last night. Um, he was thinking about his Christmas morning sermon and how, uh, and he was wondering, he's like, it seems so familiar to him. And they woke up this morning, went through different things, and he realized last year he had preached from the same portion of scripture. And he was thinking, he was telling me today, he's like, you know, should I change it? Should I go back to the drawing board, make a new one? I was like, no, you probably didn't preach everything you had to preach that Sunday. And I told him, tonight, I am going to preach out a portion of Scripture I have preached here at least twice before. But there is so much in every verse of Scripture. I could spend, um, I could spend a long amount of time in this portion of Scripture in Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah 7, 8, and 9 is probably the quintessential prophecies about the birth of Messiah. The theme this year is taken from an old Christmas hymn, the words, it's the words, it's also the words of the Magi. Where is he that is to be born king of the Jews? Christmas is often commercialized and confused. Even those who say they understand Christmas really don't because they do not, they do not understand of Jesus as their king. Queen Elizabeth, who passed away this year, little did she know last year would be her final Christmas address. I know for us Yankees, we don't understand this, but over in England, it's a tradition for quite a long time for royalty to give a Christmas address. So I watched last year's Christmas address, the final Christmas address that Queen Elizabeth gave. And in it, she was talking about how the birth of a child is like the birth of the Christ child, which represents endless possibility. With all due respect to the former, to the now on to a reward queen, that is not what Christmas represents. Jesus didn't come to simply be a baby with endless possibilities, but to be for us Emmanuel, God with us. The story of Christmas and all of the scripture points to this one word. If you want to summarize everything in the Bible in one word, it's just one word, Emmanuel, God with us. He was born a child, but yet a king. Who is in the manger? Now, of course, Jesus is. Who is the king who wears the crown? The same one who is in the manger. Who is the king who is promised, sought after, after by the magi? It is the king who is born, and it is the king who is given. And salvation is found in no one else. So many want the crown. So many want to be in charge. They want to be in charge of their own lives. And they find out the more we try to be in charge of our own lives, the more they go out of control. If you've ever supported somebody, or maybe yourself have been in a 16-step program, that is one of the first things that you go over to realize, no, my life is out of control, to get out of denial. To realize that even though I think things are great, I have a burden of sin, but there is one who has come to save me. So many want the crown and so many want the throne, but there is only one who is born to be king. Tonight we remember the manger and who really was in those swaddling clothes. Looking back up at Mary was God himself, who was there in the beginning, 
who will be there in the end, who has no end, no beginning. He is the Alpha and the Omega, King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator and maker of all things, now wreathed in flesh the Godhead sees. Hail, incarnate deity. I have preached on Isaiah 9 a couple of times now. Once was explaining the names of Christ that are found in verse 6. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. All of which applies to the babe in the manger. My first Christmas here, we turned off all the lights, like literally all the lights. It was pitch black and we had our candles and I was a little worried we were going to start the place on fire, but we didn't. It was gorgeous from up on the stage because all I could see was your faces and nothing else. And I quoted from Isaiah 9 to talking about how those living in the land of deep darkness have seen a great light. Tonight, we are focusing, laser focus on verse 7, where we look at his government and his peace, which there shall be no end. Tonight, we remember the one who is born king. Isaiah 8 and 9 are, are very interesting co-chapters. Isaiah 8 gives a, tells us what the problem is. This is what the problem is. People come to you and they tell you, you want to know what life is really about? You know how to be successful? Let me tell you. In Isaiah 8, he's, the Lord specifically talks about mediums and necromancers, those who speak to the dead. And the Lord almost kind of gets, the Lord gets upset in this message where he says, shouldn't a people inquire of their God? What do the dead know about the living? Shouldn't the people look towards their God? And he says, because they will not look towards him, because they do not have this word, they have no light in dawn, they have no light of dawn. They don't have the morning star. You know one of the last ways Jesus describes himself is the morning star? He is the light into the darkness. In Isaiah 8, it talks about the problem. The problem is darkness. The problem is spiritual darkness is that naturally, without Christ, we go towards anything else for answers for our life, of who we are, and they're just simply empty clouds. They can't satisfy us. But in that manger 2,000 years ago was the author of life, and he was king of life. He was the Lord of the living. and He was the Lord of the living. The end of Isaiah 8 gives us a problem. It tells us of a time when people will look towards medium, the necromancers. They will stumble about in darkness and their spiritual malnutrition. They will look towards the earth seeing only gloom and they will curse their God and their king. But those who are living in the land of Judea, of Nazareth, of Bethlehem, on them have seen a great light. um, And Isaiah 9 is the answer to the darkness. The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. When we understand that in a New Testament sense, in the book of Revelation, it is a king who is born, a Lord who is given, because that is what we need. We can't be Lord of ourselves. We try to be, and we just fail just utterly. We try to make other people Lord. We look towards politicians and we think maybe the next guy who comes in, he's going to change everything around. And then they're a disappointment. It never lasts because there's only one king whose government and peace, there shall be no end. It is the one who is in the manger. He was born king. He is the light that shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. 
Tonight we zero zero in in verse 7. And we look at one, Christ government. Two, Christ peace. And three, the eternal kingdom. The first one here, Christ government. What is God's type of government? You know, it's unique. It's unique in the sense that it's never really been tried. It's not seen anything, but it's also something that's been in effect for 2,000 years. The citizens of this government turn the world upside down. They are known for their love for their king, and they are known for their love for each other. It's a kingdom not of this world, but it's a kingdom over and beyond this world. It is the kingdom of God, and is what Christ preached about in his earthly ministry. Psalms 2 asks this question at the beginning. Why do the nations rage and plot in vain? It's a prophetic song of David and speaks of Jesus Christ. It speaks to what the prophet prophesies here in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, that there is a kingdom above all other kingdoms. The nations rage against it. They plot against its king. And God, in turn, laughs. Every year, there's some, there's some attempt to try to take Christ out of Christmas. And I think, I think we do a disservice by getting worked up. Why should, we think, why should we think those who do not love the Lord should honor the Lord during Christmas? All these people who want to rage against the Lord at Christmas, try to strip him away, the Lord looks at that and he laughs. You can't take Christ out of Christmas. You can take it off the calendar. You can make your coffee cups red and green or whatever, but you can't take Christ out of Christmas for Christ is in our hearts. He is all around. His spirit is shed abroad in this world. His kingdom is not an earthly kingdom, but it is over all other kingdoms. Have the, has the world not already said, we will not have this man king over us? Churches, unfortunately, do the same. Many churches tomorrow, they will not be meeting. It won't be due to the weather. It'll be because they've sold their soul to this world, and that's a very, very sad thing for what happens to the salt when it loses its saltiness. Churches would rather honor the culture of this world and to honor Christ on the Lord's day for many multitudes of reasons. Abraham Kipner said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry mine. Jesus Christ currently is at the right hand of the Father. And there is nothing he does not look at in your life and he does not say, that's mine. Our problem is that sometimes we forget who's on the throne, who wears the crown, who is the king the Magi sought. It wasn't me. You know, in, in 1983, they didn't go to Aberdeen, South Dakota, and they're like, where's he who is born king of the, of the North Dakotans? Nobody did that. Nobody did that for you either. There's only one king on the throne. And he looks at every square inch in your life and he says, mine. Our problem is we say we want to try to tell him no mine, but he will not relent until he has everything. He will not stop until it is his. Because when you came to him, you said, here, take all of me. It is why Herod tried to kill this king is because the words of the prophet here in Isaiah chapter 9 are true. Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. And for generations, nations and kings have tried to try to tell the Lord, no, you can't come in here. In China, during, 
during the worst of the Red Revolution when they were piling up mountains of bodies of religious folk, the church in China was flourishing. Even though they knew to come out as a believer meant to, be, meant to die. It is the same true today. For the increase of his government and of his peace, there shall be no end. This is a kingdom that today is spiritual, but one day will be physical. His kingdom today is for all. It's not a place. It is not a city. It is not a country. It is all who would believe. Jesus Christ told Pilate, the one who was judging him at the crucifixion, that his kingdom was not of this world. Then we fast forward to Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and loud voices called out in heaven, The kingdom, the kingdom of the world, have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. People will try to keep Christ out of every facet, but no, there will be no stop. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The increase of his government, there will be no end. Nothing can stop this. No one, nothing can speed it up, for it is the zeal of the Lord that will accomplish this. I particularly look to be on his side. Abraham Lincoln, during the, during the Civil War, was asked, do you believe God is on our side? And he had told the person asking him, I don't know if God is on our side. I just want to be on his side. That's my paraphrase, anyway, of what he said. His peace of his government and his peace, there shall be no end. The word peace here in verse 7, in in verse 7 of chapter 9, there will be no end to this peace. This peace is a Hebrew word. It means shalom. I mean, the word is shalom. It is how observant Jews to this day will greet and say goodbye to one another. Shalom. Shalom doesn't mean what we mean by when we say peace. Most of the times when we say peace, we, we think of just a cessation of hostilities. Those of you with kids, you know where I'm at, right? Sometimes your, your kids are fighting, and one is so convinced of their rightness, and the other one is, and you don't care. You just want peace and quiet. Just Can we just be quiet for one moment? That's not the peace. That shalom, the shalom that will never end is. Shalom, shalom referred to a wall that had no defect in, in it. The walls of Jerusalem kept invaders out. It was so important that when Nehemiah, when he was in captivity in Persia, when he heard about Israel, when he heard that the walls had been broken down, he started weeping. Because there's no shalom in Israel. So he goes back and he builds up the walls. Now there's shalom, there's completeness, but not yet. The Savior comes and he makes us complete. We come to him when we realize that we, have, we are broken. He makes something even better than what we were. He makes out of us shalom, and of his shalom there will be no end. Our greatest need in this life is not food, it's not water, it's not air, but peace with God. Why do you need peace with God? Well, we don't have to go very far to see what not having peace with God looks like. We just have to go just a little bit back in Isaiah. We read about the gloom, the utter darkness, the hunger that can't be satisfied, the thirst that cannot be quenched, never being made whole, always being incomplete, not having the shalom of God, the one who is Yahweh shalom in our life. 
We need peace with God because we are his enemies in our mind. And that is what sin is a testimony of. In the same, in the same book that we read from today in Isaiah, it says that even our righteous deeds are filthy rags before him. They are sin. Even when we try to do well because of our own doubled meaning heart, it is counted as sin. Sin is darkness. Sin is darkness. You've heard the word, we're in church, you've heard the word before, heathen. It's used as a pejorative, as an insult, right? Oh, that heathen over there. I remember one time uh, in youth group, I was, we were leading youth group, and I, this one girl, her friend, was drinking some Mountain Dew, and you weren't supposed to do that in our, in our sanctuary. And so she like points her out, and she says, look at the heathen, she's drinking Mountain Dew. Heathen is a pretty benign word. It comes from the German. I'm talking about our English word heathen comes from the German, and it means outside the city. Outside the city. It's a powerful word, too, because when we realize that the parables of Jesus Christ about those who are put onto the outside, they were welcome in, they were invited in, but they did not have the wedding clothes. So they were thrown outside where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We need this peace. We need the shalom of God. Because without it, we have nothing. I don't care if you're king of the world. If you do not have shalom with God, you have nothing. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? Christ wants peace with you. He desires peace with you. In your relationship with God, I'm assuming today that you don't know the Lord or you can think of a time when you did not know the Lord. Your relationship with him was the one who offended the one who's always done what is right in your life. It's not a conflict with two sides. You, through your sin, have alienated and aggressed against him, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God wants peace with you. Before you cared or before you desired to love him, to know him, he died for you. Think in your mind your worst Sin, the worst thing you've ever done. Like the thing you don't even tell other people and you pray nobody finds out about. In that moment, Christ saw you and he still decided to go to the cross, to the manger, to the grave, and to the ascension. This peace knows no end. There are those who will say, no, God wouldn't accept me. God would not love me. I'm not a church person. Not after what I have done. It is utter ridiculousness for the increase of his government and his peace. There shall be no end. It goes beyond hellfire insurance. It goes to life, to adoption, into his family, to rule and to reign with Christ in his kingdom, the eternal kingdom. As we... Finish up verse 7 of chapter 9. We have this phrase right here. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will, will do this. The tail end of verse 7 tells of the, that Christ... The child born on 2,000 years ago, the son given, will rule on David's throne. This is a clear reference to the promise God made to David. One of the very last things Jesus says in the Bible is that he is the root and descendant of David. This is more than genealogy, the right of kings. No, he is the source 
of David. He is the creator and maker of all things. Jesus Christ will say, why do you say that the Messiah is the son of David when he calls him Lord? He is the king. Jesus Christ is the king of the eternal kingdom. And of this kingdom, there will be no end. Many are worried or even celebrating the drop in influence and of adherence of Christianity. We need to stop being so worried about such things. The gates of hell will not overcome his church. From this time and forevermore. There are two ways he upholds his kingdom. Justice and righteousness. Justice. Justice is a popular word currently. It is, the, it is, it is what his throne is built around. Many will start with this first and they will go off into a hundred different directions because when we think of love, when we think of justice, when we think of righteousness, we want to define those terms. If you define those terms, then you see yourself as king and Lord. We should be concerned with how the Jesus Christ defines these words. What is justice? What is righteousness? What is love? Many want to substitute their justice for God's justice to make it seem like, they are, that, like he is whatever pet grievance they currently have. But the judge of all the universe does right and he doesn't ask our opinion. He upholds it with righteousness. Do the right thing. If we did the right thing, Jesus would never have to come to this earth. If we would do the right thing, then there would be no need for one to die in our place. If even one person could do the right thing, Jesus would not have needed to die. We often comfort ourselves with this phrase and it's so it's 100% true that if you were the only one, Christ still would have died for you. It is equally true to say, if you were the only sinner who's ever lived, Christ would have to die for you. Because that is how bad our sin truly is. It can only take the blood of Christ himself. For none do good, no, not one, none is righteous. If even one person could do the right thing, Jesus would not have needed to die. The law would be enough. But I can't do the right thing. You can't do the right thing. We fail time and time again, but God sees us as righteousness. He upholds his kingdom with righteousness. Not this last October, but the previous October, I wrote an article for our local paper. It, was, it dropped right around Halloween, so I called it something really scary. And in that I said, if, ho- if heaven is the home of the righteous, does that include you? I mean, do you really believe that you consider yourself righteous enough to be in heaven according to God's standards and not your own? And as I answer that, I say, yes, because it's not about me. I have become the righteousness of Christ. That when I believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, the righteousness of Christ was now credited to my account. And when God looks at me, he doesn't see me, but he sees his son. Because for his son, the increase of his government and his peace, there shall be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Tomorrow is Christmas Day. The verse before this, we are told, For unto us a son is born, unto, a, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, is because we needed this son. We needed this child. This is cause for great joy. I don't know where you're at right now. Maybe you're, this is a difficult Christmas for you. Maybe this is the first Christmas without a loved one. 
Or this is the first Christmas since your life was turned upside down and you look at the world and you wonder, how can, how can we talk about joy? How can we talk about peace and happiness when there's so much tragedy and gloom going on in this world? Longfellow thought this way, the poet. When he looked at the Civil War, when he looked at all these things going on, and he says, what peace on earth is there? For hate mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill towards men. And then he wrote, but rang the bells loud and clear. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. I pray that no matter where you're at this Christmas, today, tomorrow, every day of this entire year, you would remember a son was, a child was born, a son was given, a Lord was born, a king was given to be on his throne, the throne of his father David, and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. We're going to light the Advent candle at this time. Becca, if you would help me. Owen family, if you would, uh, if you'd get ready. Yep. Tonight we get to light all the candles. Every week of Advent, we were lighting a different candle and talking about the different things the candles represented from the prophecies of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, we go all the way back to the moment when, when our first father and first mother fell. And there was a promise spoken over them, specifically to the devil who had deceived them, that the seed of the woman would grow, the, the, Satan would bruise his heel, but the son would crush his head. We talked about the Bethlehem candle, the candle of preparation. Mary and Joseph preparing to make the long, arduous trek to Bethlehem on foot while Mary was pregnant. And we are to remember, to where are we at with our preparation? Are we ready? So many things in the, in the New Testament when it concerns prophecy, and everyone's so concerned. Okay, is the end times happening now? Or what are these things? What do these things mean? It could happen in an instant, or you could go to eternity into an instant. Are you ready? Are you prepared? The candle of love of the, of the angels, candle of joy, sorry, who spoke to the shepherds that born in the town of David is one who'd be king of the Jews, who'd be their king, and finally, the candle of the shepherds. The most common of men chosen to witness the birth of the Messiah. And finally, we have our center candle. The candle of Christ. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved in his gospel, starts it out off as enarche hohologos. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing has been made that can be made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. We'll be lighting, the, the, we'll be lighting your candles. I'll have our board members light their candle from the Christ candle. They will then go throughout the congregation lighting your candle. For remember, as Christ came into this world as the light... His light lit the candle of his 12 disciples 
who then lit the candle of all who would believe their message of Jesus Christ. And in all is the light, the same light, that in the darkness of the universe, God called out, let there be light, has caused his light to shine in our hearts. Owen family, take it away. Would you stand as we sing that chorus one last time?